Hi, I'm Eddie Moretti. Welcome to the Vice Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Nicholas Winding Refn. I think I got that right. Uh, the director of films like Valhalla Rising, Bronson, Drive, and now the new film, Only God Forgives. Ish. Ish. You're not sure about that. You, d- you directed it, but you don't know if God for- can forgive. I think that act of revenge and forgiveness is so embedded in our DNA that it's a consequential, the whole concept of drama. Mm. Well, how, yeah, so that is a theme that connects all of your work, obviously, you know, um, you, you know, Valhalla Rising is all about that, right? Vengeance. Mm-hmm. Um, w- w- where do you see that? Why is that such a big concern of yours? Where, where in the world do you see this drive no pun intended, to vengeance. I think that vengeance is so primal because it forces us to take a moral view. You know, I mean, um, when people ask about the act of violence, it's, uh, if you look at humanity, you were born as a violent organism out of self-preservation. Purely. Where, 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 what's the violent moment in our birth? Well, the, our physicality. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're born with parts of our body that can be violent, but it was mostly out of self-preservation, you know, the self of survival. Right. And over the years, we have ways to survive without the need of violent mechanisms. You know, mm-hmm. society, religion makes law now that our teeth, our hands, things that are very violent parts of our body no longer has functions other than what it, we use it for, shake our hands. So, so not as weapons. No, well, it's no longer needed as a weapon. Right. But it's just a weapon if you don't have any violent impulses and it has no function. So yeah. obviously we are born with a violent impulse. Yeah. And once you take those away, devices and, and, and you know, castrates them so they no longer need it because of society we then fantasize much more about violence because we still have it within us but when it used to be an outlet out of self-preservation it now becomes fantasy more or less and is that the source of your violent fantasies are you tapping (laughs) into that well I think that there is a you feel primal (laughs) I think that Primal works very well in terms, it's very accessible for a audience or a spectator to... Um, they recognize it, right? To connect with. Yeah. It's, a, it's an instinct. That's why there are certain laws in drama that constantly reappear from generation to generation. It's the same DNA and right. comes back and comes back and comes back and comes back. And it's, it's, the, it's the essence of drama, and of course, vengeance is very much, because it, vengeance is based on, on moral mm. standpoint. And that's what makes us a human function, rather than just an animalistic mm-hmm. approach of self-preservation, which is the only thing an animal knows. Mm. So, two things. One, I want to figure out where violent, 
vengeance and violence figures into your personal experience growing up in Denmark. But so that's one question. But before I, I get to that, I want to ask you. There's violence as self-preservation. Your films pretty much present these singular characters consumed um, um, with, you know, to act um, and mostly to act violent, um, with very little sense. And maybe it's different in the new film, but very little sense that there is a group here that they're trying to preserve. Right? It's not about. It is about singular survival and not about survival it's of an a individual. Of a tr- yeah, individuals. It's not like a small tribe um, or the survival of a family or a group. The new film is a little bit different because there is this family dynamic, mm-hmm. but it's really dysfunctional. Um, but where do you, you know, where do you land on that? The 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 why aren't there more, you know, sort of little social units in your in the world of your films. What, what's the attraction to this individual who's really out there all alone? Uh, well, I grew up in New York. Oh, cool. So I spent my teenage years, I came in 1979 mm. and stayed here until 87. A decade or so. Yeah, so from I was so, eight to I was 17. Nine. Okay, so you came of age in New York. Yeah, I'm a... I would say I have a Danish passport, but I'm a New Yorker by heart. And so, what was that experience like for you? And I think that coming to America without knowing English and obvious sense of isolation comes to mind. Mm. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's in the minute you're out of your understanding. Well, not even home, but when you're in a world where there's no logic to the noises around you, in terms of speech. Right. You very much observe the world, you're forced to observe the world in a different way. Right. Um, coming to America at that time, you know, was very different than it is now because it was really an event. New York all was, the way yeah, New York was Copenhagen. In 87? No, 78. 78. So, yeah, New York was really different in 78. But it's the whole concept of going to New York was right. different. Yeah. You know, the, the idea of a skyscraper, you know. I mean, the, at night you you had to dial because it was a better connection. Right. It was it was it was that far away, and I think that concept of movement into an unknown territory mm. and being isolated mm. is maybe something to do with it. Maybe. But I'm not an analyst. I certainly wouldn't want to go to one. Right. <laughs> um, but I can see some of the mechanisms that I do understand, and it's okay to understand. But just intellectually, are you interested in, you know, a similar type of character that you've, you know, um, you know portrayed in your movies, but, you know, put, you know, putting that character in a more social situation? The There's family a sense dynamic. of isolation in mythology, Right. That the uh, it's hard to fantasize about a tribe that's not very fetish oriented. Mm. You must remember, I approach my films like a pinup. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about what arouses me, mm-hmm. and not so much about. I'm not a social. I'm not a political filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I don't mix. I don't touch upon social issues. 
as an agenda of a specific political mm -hmm. view or social view. It, it, I, it, it, I don't have that form of interest mm -hmm. in my, you know, in what I do. Mm -hmm. I, I, well, there's a group in Valhalla, right? There's, but it's again, it's like a well, very dysfunctional group that. that Valhalla Rising is very much about a specific rel religious chaos that was taking time in that period right. in Europe, where Christi Christianity was spreading yeah. up through the north and how it was devouring um, paganism. And, but it was a devouring in different kind of ways. It was, it was even mutating. So Jesus would be sold as a warrior for certain people. Mm -hmm. It would purchase, it, was, it would buy people. Mm -hmm. It would uh, conquer. And the idea that the first holy war had a lot of people that weren't even Christians moving towards it because it was at a time when there was religious turmoil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the search for some kind of meaning, mm -hmm. which essentially came with Christianity. Mm -hmm. Society was essentially created, as we mm -hmm. know it today, throughout the world. I really loved that film. I think it's, it was really, you know, powerful. And there, that long sequence, like, what was the vision? What, what, what inspired that film? Like, what was the central image, um, you know, that that motivated you like there is that long long sequence in the mist mm. and to me i was like this is kind of what this film is about in a strange way mm. but i couldn't you know um put my finger on it but um where did that scene fit into your you know your initial desire i wanted to do a science fiction movie it did feel tarkovsky and, and like sci-fi without but, science well, yeah without science with just because science limits you yeah Science is based on logic, yeah. like machinery, mm. you know, technology, technology, yeah, yeah. whatever we call it. It's, it's, yeah. There's a limitations to the imagination in it. Mm. There was even a moment in the, that miss sequence where I thought, "That's the film is gonna end in here," but I saw the trailer, so I knew that. You know what happens? I knew a little bit. You always there, give it away. Well, I knew there was gonna be um, some, some, but some I dudes think on that the, rocks. the whole idea of wanting to make that film came from when I was little. Mm. Um, I was like, I'm, I'm dyslexic, mm. and uh, my mother read me a story uh, about a father and son that travels to the moon in a spaceship, and on the moon they find a cave, and in the cave they find a human coffin. It's <laughs> a good story. And I can't remember what happened. Right. Or I remember, but forgotten it and the idea of doing a film about traveling into a mystery right taking it at a time where there was nothing you know mm. see when you make films there's also the whole business side of how do you get the money right so I went to some financiers and I said Matt Mickelson Vikings action He's a, the craziest killer, and everyone <laughs> done. Done deal. Done deal. How much do you need? That's the that, but that's only the first act. <laughs> that was the first image. Or the first image. <laughs> but um, so I was able to get like three million dollars. Yeah. Like, combined out of Europe yeah. to do that. And just out of curiosity, how did they feel of the finished product? Everyone believed it was going to be a nail in my coffin. Yeah. 
because I just came because I just came off Bronson. Yeah, different. Which had been very successful. Very successful, but a different, you know. Different, uh, completely different. Yeah, completely different kind of film. But don't forget, Bronson and Valhalla Rising were made back to back. Literally, oh, wow. yeah. I went from one movie to the other movie. Which one? Which one is your favorite? You can't. I know. It's hard. I, I know. Have, I have two kids. I know. It's not. It's not Sophie's choice. No. But you know, did was the idea to make Valhalla already in your pocket while you were making Bronson? Yeah. Okay. Just like Only God Forgives was already in my head when I made Drive. Got it. Because I was really going to make Valhalla Rising, mm. and then I decided to do Bronson first. Suddenly, oh wow! Out of nowhere, and then I was going to make Only God Forgives, and I suddenly decided to do Drive you, first. You, 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 it would probably have been harder to make Bronson if you made Valhalla first. I think that I wouldn't have made Valhalla the way I did if I hadn't made Bronson first. Really? It's like explain. Well, Bronson is like an all night of cocaine. Yeah. And next Fun. morning, it's all acid, or the aftermath, <laughs> yeah. or the the shakes, or the uh, yeah, the regret, the, the regret, the but guilt. also the whole um, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. A feel, you right. know? Yeah. And we'll drive, and on a Godless Gives, it's I've I can only almost now see a certain similarity in in the constructions of of the four movies. Yeah. That there are that they are the effect of a decision that causes everything to change. It's like a flip of a coin. Mm. They're the ends of both extremes. Mm. And there's no middle, because I don't have time to think of the down, of, 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 of anything in between. Mm -hmm. I like that about your filmmaking. That doesn't, you know, that you don't have, like, only God moves, really. For a slow, uh, you know, studied film with a real deliberate camera work and pacing and stuff, it moves. Like, this mm. is a story that keeps unfolding, and I think it's interesting. There is no kind of time or, you know, space to bother with a lot of, the details, like how did they get there? You know, pinup magazine. Yeah, explain that like a, a little more. It's like um, if you were to go take a photo, photography book, or even you look at your own wall. Mm. If you take all those images the way they they are now, and you go from you know left to right, how we observe story, it will a certain pattern will reveal itself. If you were to mix them around and do the same thing again, a new pattern would mm. reveal itself. But essentially, the right pattern would reveal itself. Mm -hmm. So, all my film can start with, like Bronson was, I want to make a film about a man who wants to be his own mythology. Mm -hmm. And it's going to start with, my name is Charles Bronson, and all my life I wanted to be famous. Mm -hmm. And it's going to end with a success. But the consequences is he's chained for life. Right. And on the horizon, the idea of going into the unknown at a religious turmoil and, and doing a film that's a science fiction without technology, mm -hmm. very much, I, I, it, it's like meditation in a way. Mm -hmm. If you look at the same 
constellation. Like if you look at that image of those trees for enough, for 90 minutes, it's guaranteed to alterate a thousand different ways and you may even change your perspective of everything else around you. And Drive, it was about capturing a moment me and Ryan had in a car where I had this kind of, because I was also very high. What were you high on? Pot? No, I'd gotten these anti-flu drugs because I, I had a fever. In America, they produce these things that I'm not used to having in Europe. So it was a, some kind of powder you put in hot water and then you drink it and mm -hmm. it completely made me delirious. And at the same time, I had a high fever and we were driving in the car and our speed wagon was playing and I started, you know, singing and I, and I started to cry and I came up with, oh my God, we're gonna make a movie about a man who drives around in a car at night listening to pop music. So we wanted to make a movie about that emotion. Right. And Only God Forgives I sold it as a fight. I, I went to some French people and I said, you know, a French film costs six million euros on an average basis. So I said, I'll give you two movies for six. And one of them will be a fight movie because that's a commercial commodity. They're like, okay. And I thought, okay, the most dominating image of any fight movie or entertainment, which is so enormous around us. It's the clenched fist. You know, it's, it's this, this image is so dominating and there is a very singular vision of aggression and violence within it. It's like even just people doing this, we automatically step away or we, we are conscious of a possible violent act. It scares us. Yeah. But it's also an extension of the male's sexuality. It, it's an act of release. So sex and violence in the exact same definition. Configuration, right. Yeah, it's, it's not just, it's, it's like, it's a sculpture mm. that has both things. And, 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 and and when, when, especially when people fight, that the clenching is so enormous that they sometimes shake because they right, have to be so strong taut, taut, yeah. that on impact and the hand opens up, it's a sense of climax. Hmm. So this act of sex and violence in one movement, and that, then I thought, okay, but if I did this, it's full submission because it's the oldest form of prey. And I thought that movement, going from this to that, that I, I, I could make a movie about that. That's the origin of the storyline. Of only God forgives. Really? Is that how you create? Are you motivated, like? Purely like a pinup. Yeah. It's more than just a pinup, right? It's. I mean, does that come to you in a flash, or do you think about it and you know develop? Do you get obsessed? Think about it. You get yeah. I think I, I came. I actually came more into that because I was I was in Scotland and I was going through um, 
my wife was pregnant with our second child and it was a very difficult pregnancy. So I was very angry because I was very afraid, essentially. Hmm. And I... Uh, it's almost when you are in doubt, faith comes in. And I'm not a religious man, but faith is very natural in our... when we are in need of it. And the idea that if there was a God who had the power to give or take life, well, I wanted to punish him for what he was putting me through. So the idea of a man wanting to fight God began the intellectual began, began this, this process, right? And then I came up with the police lieutenant, and then there was, and then Julian, which was the protagonist. Yeah. But then this wasn't really an antagonist because he was so large in life. You, God is not an interesting opponent because he's on. It's like having Superman. He's untouchable. He's, right. You can never defeat him. Right. So I had to come up with another antagonist, and I came up, because the film is essentially also a revenge story. So the classic gangster royal family construction, you know, was yeah. his mother. Right. You know, which, is, makes, which changes everything, because we're so used to male dominance in that kind of configuration. But bringing in a woman and making it the mother automatically opens up a very complicated relationship because of the sexual nature mm -hmm. of violence. And then the idea that she devours her children. Mm -hmm. She's like a heightened, everything is heightened reality, yeah. of course. But that's what fairy tales can do. You heighten reality because then you can, everything can dribble down in terms of our subconscious because authenticity is not interesting in mm -hmm. fiction because it's no, you can never duplicate reality. Mm -hmm. But if you can heighten it, you can mirror it, which right. is very different. Right. Um, the, the, the police um, chief, is he chief of police or whatever? Well, he was, I figured he was, uh, he was written as a, a, he wears the uniform of a Thai police lieutenant right. that's retired. But of course, nobody will know that except Thai. <laughs> Thai police. <laughs> but he gave him, he looked like a priest. Yeah. Because he had a white collar and he had this black uniform, which yeah. is how they dress. Yeah. And when did you th give him that device? The slicing of the. Well, it's fist. because um, the, um, I mean, the, this, the character that. Attire, the type of blue lieutenant kind of the godlike character that he's based on or God is not is God from the Old Testament not the new one because in the Old Testament God said you have to fear me because mm -hmm. I will be cruel as you have to love me because I will be kind so he's based on purely cause and effect he's based on on purely an emotional instinctual reaction mm -hmm. to injustice mm -hmm or whatever comes through our lives. And the hands is the oldest form of punishment that we know of is the removal of hands. And certain cultures still practice it. We have a documentary on vice on the removal of hands and, and arms uh, in Mali. Okay, so in Mali. it's still practiced yeah. in many ways, but it's, and it's a, 
And it's a way because when you remove your hands, you remove a social status, you remove a physical status, you remove a weapon, right? A like weapon. You, you know, it's 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 a form of 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 of, of a, yeah, a castration in a sense. You mm -hmm. know. So the idea that that's and it's a mark. So that you see it automatically. And then I remember, I have, I'm very obsessed with my hands. See, I have, I have very soft hands. Um, and I remember my mother told me when I was little, I would always protect my hands when I fell. And, and when I was, um, when it was winter in New York, I had my mother, uh, um, bathe my hands in Vaseline and then put socks on them when I was asleep. Why? So when I would wake up, they were nice and soft. They were soft because if you think about it, on one level, there's a whole belief that if you open your palm, we can read our future within it. At the same time, the act of touching is so sensitive mm -hmm. that the more sensitive your hands are, the more of an effect everything has around mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And then hands is a great way to understand people psychic of how they look at themselves, mm -hmm. how they look at other people. What do you think of me? Interesting. <laughs> good hands? Not as good as Ryan's. No. <laughs> Uh, not, I guess not a lot of people have. Is, is, were you attracted to his hands? Really? Well, he has very beautiful hands. Yeah. I look at hands, um, but not the way you do, but, but you were drawn to his hands. Well, it's part of the story, so it yeah. kind of had to work. But I mean, before that, like, you know, no. I, I don't know when you started collaborating with him or when you... Well, it, that actually came very late because... I was, since I was going to make Only God Forgives first, mm. I had cast a movie with other actors when I was Got doing it. Drive. And then after Drive had premiered, this particular actor that I had cast to play the Julian part drops out three months before we were supposed to start prep. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, fuck, I'm left with no actor. Mm. And I was with Ryan at that time in LA at a place we like to go called the 101 and he we had just done drive and we had met in such a peculiar way to do drive that it was almost like an opportunity arose to do another movie mm. and uh, I really needed his help because I didn't know who else I, to I just cast in there I, I was blank and then and then because of the role you looked at his hands and yeah I mean come on and what what how did you meet him what's the peculiar circumstance that, that originally un originally under which you he met he called me he liked your films yeah yeah we never met yeah he liked working with them I do yeah oh he's the best yeah mm. uh, so how do you how given like kind of the mythological space that you're working in especially in this film how do you motivate your how do you how do you direct your actor how do you direct him like are you what kind of discussions do you have with them because you know exposition and the kind of things that some um, actors like to know about where 
who is my character, where is, what's his motivation, where was he born, or whatever. The, you know, there is no exposition in your movies, and I think that's what, at least, you know, in Only God, that's what makes it, keeps it moving really quickly, because you don't care about who had Cheerios for breakfast, or how they got into a car, or out of a car. Why do you need all those setup shots that they're useless? I agree with you. But, um, yeah, just give me an example of how you talk to your actors. Well, it's a way of submitting to the actual act of creating. Because I shoot my films in chronologically order. So, so it constantly is an open void as it moves. Now, I have a start, middle, and an end that I want to get to, like the three beats I have to get to. Mm -hmm. And there's also a specific script. But it's open to constant organism that can alter if it needs to be. With, in with your collaborators. With, yeah. So um, with the actors, which is a very intimate part of that process. And giving in, as I saying, submission means you give in to the creation by always asking everyone else, what would you like to do? Constantly reminding them that they have to complete give themselves 200% because or else the creation will automatically exclude you. Is that why you shoot chronolo in chronological order? So, well, I do that because also I get really confused because it becomes about, well, how, and everything becomes so mechanical. Right. And then it's, it's kind like of, well, then, then, then I've done it. Then, yeah. You didn't already done it in your head. Yeah. But the act of painting is much more interesting. And I, I can't paint. I'm, I'm colorblind, you know, mm. so I wouldn't get very far. Mm. And I, I'm not very good with clay. I can't play music. I can't sing. I don't, I'm not, not a very good writer. So I don't really have a lot of opportunities, as Bronson would say. Mm. So, so film became it. And the idea of sitting with someone and that's why it's so important who you cast, because when you're constantly asking the question, what would you like to do, it's, it opens a discussion between you and the performer, or Ryan, or Kirsten Scott Thomas, or Tom Hardy, or Matt Mickelson, whoever I've collaborated with over the years very intimately. Um, and, and then it's like, suddenly, Afterwards, things begun to have more meanings. Because then when I'm in editing room, the first thing I do with Matt Newman, who edits all my movies, is that we put the movies together in a thousand different ways. Just to see what it would do. Like you would do here. Right. You would do a, col a constant collage, and then slowly everything would reveal itself that you maybe subconsciously didn't know was in it. Mm. But you've scripted this production, so you've shot in sequence. You're saying that after in the editing process, you let... Completely. Completely. Cut everything back and forth, left, right, center. Wow. What's your favorite part? Um, or, you know, that sounds like a stupid question. What do you enjoy more? The process of shooting and capturing or that next process of rearranging and discovering? Both have great 
uh, emotional ups and downs in it. I think for me, my favorite part is just coming up with the idea, because it has no consequences. It's the most important part of it as well, right? When like some a, a powerful idea like this or this image, and your hatred of God because of your newborn. I mean, that really, that part of it is the most fun because that drives everything else. Everything else. That you, it's the engineer of the motor. Yeah. Do you ever feel when you get that image and that idea that's so fertile and it generates so much, so many other questions and considerations, do you ever get a little drunk on that feeling? And do you ever feel you know, do, is that a eureka moment? Do you feel like, oh, I've, I have a thing that has a life of its own now? Well, it's very, once you tap into it, it's, you can't stop. You're right. And it flows, and it's very great. And you really can't be around people because everything is a disturbance. And so it's hard when you have children and a wife. So I have to find specific moments to do that. And it usually happens at night when everybody has gone to sleep. So I can, it needs to come out, you need to exit, you need to, in excess, you need to get it out of the body. Yeah. And do you write it to get it out? In, do you in, collage index cards. it? Index cards. Just write ideas on index cards. Like no this. imagery, no, just. I don't do mood boards. It's conceptual, yeah. com completely wild. The mind is an yeah. incredible device. Yeah. That's the film, in a sense. When that that is the creation of the film, yeah. that that and that's cool. Does it make you happy when you're going through that process? Oh, it's great. It's the act of it, creativity is the ultimate high. And I'm I'm very afraid of anything dangerous, so I don't drink alcohol, I don't smoke cigarettes, I don't do drugs, I don't do anything that's dangerous, because I have extreme fear of pain. And but creativity, when it works, the combination, it's like the ultimate, I mean, I was no angel when I was young, but it's like, it's the greatest euphoria stage of, of, of being. It's mm -hmm. like, it's when you become godlike, because the power you have and the flow and, and the purity of of just the satisfaction, the, how it speaks to your ego and vanity, and 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 there's an outlet because creativity essentially is an outlet. If you are able to and accept all your demons within you, then creativity is, is it's it's better than therapy. It's a release pattern. It's like sex, but times a billion. And it just keeps on going and going and going. I, I, we run out of time, um, and this is the wrong time to run out of time, but I'm gonna ask one more question. Um, that act of genesis, right, that you're talking about here, um, would you, have you ever gone into a production without going through that process? Yes. And how did it turn out? I failed miserably. So I am very fortunate 
to have felt failure so hard that it literally killed me and I needed to resurrect myself. What was that? It was a movie I did called, God, it was called, it was called Fear X. Many years in my late 20s, and I had a great collaboration with many people in it, but I failed. And so, and I failed because it wasn't about this process, it was about my ego. Right. And ego kills right. more creativity right. than any amount of drugs. But there is an ego gratification, like you described, that comes out of going through that process. Yeah, but that's because it's for me. See, but it's very different. Because ego is two different things. Because there is the ego of how other people see you. Mm -hmm. That's the dangerous Mm -hmm. ego. That's the destructive Mm -hmm. ego. And I've been there, and I've failed. Mm -hmm. Thank God I was able to rise, because it's hard Mm -hmm. to rise. And then there is the ego of just pure act of creation which is another kind of ego that is not destructive, that's not dangerous, it actually is good. So your ego has the devil and it has the God within it. And you're always at struggle within those elements, like love and hate. And it's like whenever the bad ego comes, usually in situations where you praise or where people love you, or even where people hate you, because what you do makes them so angry that the people who love it, love it even more. Right. It's dangerous. You always have to shy away and just say, you can't walk on water. Don't forget, it's the act of creation. You must forget all that comes afterwards. Well, we're taught that ego uh, is wrong. Um, but, no, no, but, ego is not wrong. No, no, I, but, but the connotations that, you know, generally people give are, are that, you know, egoism is, you know, uh, 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 vanity. Um, it's but, part, but, it can but be it can part of vanity. Be, it yeah. can be, but don't forget, it's important to be young and egotistical and believe that Johnny Ramone was right in everything he said because it creates a sense of fuck you, mm-hmm. and you have to be. You have to have a little fuck you. You can't. <laughs> you you have to go through that. Right. It's part of being young, yeah. and if you don't go through that, it's a great missed opportunity. Yeah. Cherish, you embrace your ego, but be very very careful. It's like drugs. Drugs are bad for you, but they're fun. It's a hard balance. Mm. Well, I wish we could talk all day. Um, I love your new film. Uh, I wanted to talk about sticking, you know, your hand into your mother's belly. Um, well, that's very but, primal but, for men. Yeah. <laughs> because all men essentially fear their mother's sexuality and yet they're aroused by it. Mm. Inside of you is a deep rooted instinctual part of you that you probably will not even recognize or accept or even understand that a part of you could have a sexual arousement towards your mother. Is that what God um, booed in, at Ken? Was that that scene? Or? 
Well, some people loved it, some people hated it, but they're very vocal in Cannes. So either yeah. they would stand they up like and it. cheer, or they would stand up and boo. And it probably penetrated a lot of people's minds that to places where they don't want to go, mm-hmm. which is what art mm-hmm. is supposed to. Wow, it's like I, I, I clapped. Of violence. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. Great job. Thank nice you. Nice meeting you. Yeah. yeah.